Well, good morning. It's a delight to be back with you, dear folks, here at Hawaii Kai Church. And uh, as was mentioned, I've been able to preach here over the years many times. Was last scheduled to be here in March of 2020 and was going to be here and at Makikilo Baptist Church on the other side of the island. And of course, this little interruption happened about then called COVID and derailed everything. And so here we are two years later, uh, delighted to be with you nonetheless. Turn me in your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be thinking together about Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, on the church triumphant. The church triumphant. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. The church triumphant. God's Word reads, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Let us pray together. Father, we come to you this morning. And Father, we have enjoyed the components of worship heretofore. We've received the reading of your word. We have sung psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to you. We've prayed to you. And now we come to that point in the service when we ask to hear from you from your preached word. Father, I pray this morning that this text would be used by your spirit to encourage us, to focus us, to strengthen us as a church family here, and that we would bear much fruit on the backside of it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we entered this passage this morning about the church. And by church, I don't so much mean the church universal or the church spiritual, but the church local, the church congregational. In fact, when you read your Bibles, you will notice that virtually every time in the New Testament, almost every time in the New Testament, the word church is used or referred to is referring to a specific group of believers in a specific place. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I hope to draw lines from this passage to this local church here, Hawaii Kai Church, and then lines as well to your life personally, your lives individually. The passage clearly is about the church, thus the title, The Church Triumphant. And we enter this passage always as a people in context. Every church has a, a ministry moment. I'm from Kansas City, Missouri, uh, the land of the Kansas City Chiefs. Some of you guys have heard of the Kansas City Royals. Kansas City Barbecue, and, uh, and other sweet things. But the church in Kansas City, though distant in some ways, is very similar to the church here this morning as what we've been dealing with the past two years. Uh, it's been two years of, of having to adjust and readjust due to COVID. Two years of having to reimagine how do we gather and under what circumstances do we gather and how do we minister, how do we meet needs. Two years of contingency planning. 
two years of, uh, of waiting on the most recent mandates and what we're supposed to do and what we're supposed to not do. And so I find as I'm in churches by the day that many congregations in March of 2022 candidly are a little tired, candidly at times a little irritable, candidly at times needing to be reminded as to why the church exists and what God is doing through his church and what promises Christ has made about his church. If you zoom even further out um, from the past two years of COVID, even further out to kind of this generation of ministry, uh, many believers, many church attenders take a very consumeristic approach to the church. They don't intend to per se, but they view the church kind of like other social opportunities they may have, other groups they may be a part of. And so they kind of tend to to kind of go to where their preferences are realized, to where their needs are met, to where they are, they are benefiting more than they are seeking to benefit through their local church engagement. Not too long ago, I was in Kansas City, and I was visiting with someone I just kind of met on the street, and we were talking, and as I often say to people, kind of as an evangelistic question, do you have a church home? And, uh, and the person kind of hesitated. They said to me, well, well, yeah, we go to, when we want to go to an early service, we, we go to this church. We want to go to a later service on Sunday. We go, we go to that church. And if we, go, if we want to go on Saturday night, we go, we go to this church. And like alarm bells are going off in my head as this guy's saying this. I'm thinking, you need to join a church. Be, be plugged into a church, not floating around. That represents what I believe to be so very often a consumeristic approach to the church. If they have a good youth ministry, okay, our family will come. If they have music I like, okay, we might stick around. Uh, if the preaching isn't too, isn't too, too lengthy or too in-depth, then okay, perhaps we'll be a part. But if any of those things change, then often it leads to an exit ramp to another church that's more satisfying to one or one's family's temporary desire. Of course, when we read our Bibles, much of that gets turned on its head. Yes, we should be in a church where we, we worship and we grow together, we're in community together, and that we receive, we're nourished by the preaching and teaching of the Word together, yes. But what I am pushing us to this morning from this passage is to lift our eyes higher and to be reminded of the supremacy of the church, the beauty of the church, the, the, the continuation of the church based upon the promise of Christ, and that is what we see taking place here in this passage. Christ is speaking to his disciples and through his disciples to us about his church. Now, I, I want to invite you to keep your, your Bibles open and there in your lap, and perhaps you've got an iPad or phone, whatever device or, or, or instrument you have for the Bible, keep it there so you can follow along with me through these verses. And we'll see together in these verses four truths about the church. Four truths about the church. Truth number one is Jesus establishes the church on sound doctrine. Jesus establishes the church on sound doctrine. So the narrative picks up in verse 13, and we get the picture that Jesus and the disciples, they're traveling through the area, and they come to a place where they can perhaps stop and, and rest for, for a few days. They are in the region of Caesarea Philippi, in the district of Caesarea Philippi, up to the north of Jerusalem. This area was known for its cool climate, and many folks would go there, what we might think of as, as vacation. In the ancient world, you might want to own a timeshare in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it was an inviting place to go for rest. 
And so Jesus is there after a busy season of ministry, and evidently he's there with his disciples, and they've kind of pulled over and kind of paused there for a while, and they're conversing, verse 13. And Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not confused about his personal identity. Uh, Jesus is not suffering from a low self-esteem, and he needs the affirmation of the crowd to kind of prop him up for the next week of ministry work. No. Jesus is asking this question to prompt his disciples to reflect more intentionally about who he is. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, as we gather this Lord's Day, we're just a few weeks out from Easter. And uh, every year during the Easter season and, and during the Christmas season, if you turn on your cable TV, you, uh, you, get, you, you can easily find these documentaries about the life of Jesus. Every Easter, every Christmas. And it's very predictable what you'll see, right? Uh, typically, it's, it's labeled something like the, the quest for the historical Jesus, and they will interview people, and they'll interview people perhaps from Harvard or Princeton or Yale and, and, and academics with advanced degrees, and they'll have a very you know, sophisticated air about them. And, and, and the dialogue usually goes down to something like this, where the, the person they are interviewing says, well, Jesus was a great leader. Jesus was a great moral teacher. Jesus taught and lived an ethical standard that humanity would do well to adopt today. Jesus was a historical figure. Jesus was a, he moved the culture around him. And they will give to Christ these accolades that when you first hear them, they sound appropriate, but the more you reflect on them, they fall woefully short of Jesus' own self attestation in Scripture and what our Bibles more broadly speak about the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So kind of like the question I just mentioned in these documentaries, Jesus is asking his disciples this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, in the first century, in the ancient world, every Jewish boy and every Jewish girl from childhood were taught to expect the Messiah. They were taught to look for the coming of Messiah. In fact, there would often be times of kind of this, this messianic uh, 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 craze where people would, 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 someone would claim to be the Messiah. And of course, there'd be a false claim, and, and that would kind of be sussed out. But they lived with this sense of messianic expectation. What is more, as the Jewish people knew the Old Testament so well, uh, they, they, they looked to the prophets who prophesied of the coming Messiah. And, and the Old Testament types and images and signs and symbols of the coming Messiah. And so there's this messianic expectation that's pent up. And now Jesus burst on the scenes. And John the Baptist points to Jesus as this one who's come. And, and Jesus speaks like rabbis they don't have. Jesus performs signs like their teachers cannot perform. Jesus is acting in such a way that he is confirming by the day that he is the Messiah, the one they are longing for. So Jesus here in verse 13 asks his disciples, though in a pointed way, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now notice verse 14. They said, some say John the Baptist. Now, some are assuming Jesus is John the Baptist. Remember, at this point, John the Baptist is, is dead. He has been martyred for preaching of Christ. He's been decapitated. A, a gruesome death we read about in the New Testament. He's been put to death. 
But some people are concluding that Jesus is John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. And they're assuming that because Jesus' ministry markedly like John the Baptist. Jesus preached repentance. Jesus preached the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus practiced baptism. Uh, Jesus, in some ways, was like John the Baptist as far as going to unpopular places and unpopular people. And, and so many are assuming that, that Jesus is John the Baptist come back. Verse 14. Others are suggesting he's Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament. Elijah, whom by God's fire performed many signs and wonders. And of course, as an authentication on his ministry, Jesus is performing many signs and wonders. Jesus is feeding the multitudes. Jesus is walking on water. Jesus is turning water into wine. Jesus is, is giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. And, and, and he's making the lame to walk again. And Jesus even raises the dead. And so some are seeing in Jesus, with all of this power, a likeness to Elijah and concluding that God has called the prophet Elijah back. Verse 14. But still others, Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? Jeremiah known as the weeping prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, one who was, was sad and was grief-stricken over the waywardness of God's people. And of course, Jesus was the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The one who wept over Jerusalem for them not receiving him as the Messiah. And so what the disciples are saying here then, they're saying, the people think you are unique. In fact, in the pantheon of Jewish greats, the people think, the people are placing Jesus in this pantheon of Jewish greats. He's like John the Baptist. He's like Elijah. He's like Jeremiah. He's one of the prophets. And so public opinion, at this point, Jesus' ministry has concluded that Jesus is unlike most anyone who's ever lived, so much so he's in the top tier of Jewish prophets. But notice verse 15. Jesus now sharpens the question. He adds a point to the question, and he transitions from who do people say that I am, or what is the word on the street, to who do you say that I am. Brothers and sisters, that, that is life's most important question. Who do you say that I am? And that is an individual question. It's a personal question. It's one that each one of us must answer in our heart of hearts before the Lord himself. Who do you say that Jesus is? And you can be wrong about a lot of things. You can be wrong about whether or not you should take this job, whether or not you should move your family, whether or not you should undertake this hobby, whether or not you should make this expenditure, whether or not you should be a part of this church, whether or not you should marry this person, whether or not you should buy this house. There are a lot of even very important decisions you will have to make in your life, very important, and even getting some of those wrongs, you can still live a relatively happy, fulfilled life. But you can't get this decision wrong. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? A narrowness to this question, a focus to this question. It's a personal question. Who do you say that I am? Well, notice verse 16. Simon Peter, who like always gets it wrong. Okay, this is Simon Peter. He always gets it wrong. He was born with his foot, on his his foot in his mouth. But Simon Peter here declares, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. 
You are the Messiah, and you are the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. That is a direct claim to deity, and Peter is directly acknowledging the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus owned this title, the Son of God, and Jesus linked the being the Son of God with being equal to the Father as well. And, and the Pharisees understood that claim as well. And so this is, a, this is a, a, a Gibraltar standing up conversationally, textually here, where this massive statement is made. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is saying, you got it right, Peter. You didn't get it right because you were insightful. You didn't get it right because you were well-read. You got it right because my Father who is in heaven illumines you to see this truth and to know this truth. As a brief aside this morning, do you understand that if you were in Christ today, it's not because you were the smartest guy in the room, not because you were the most insightful lady in the room, not because in all of your spiritual wisdom you determined you needed a Savior? No. Because the conviction of the Spirit, convicting you of sin, making Christ attractive to you, granting repentance in your life, and yes, by faith, you confessed your sins and you believed in Jesus, but there was a prior work of the Spirit in your life bringing you to that point. And so Jesus is acknowledging that here to Peter. God revealed this to you, not from you, but my Father was in heaven. Now notice verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this rock. Now, what is the rock? Some of our friends, especially the Roman Catholic tradition, they understand this to be a reference to Peter. And, uh, and then a link to, and claim Peter is the first pope. And so this is a link to the papacy. And let me tell you, if, if the church was built on Peter, this thing would have never made it out of the first century. This is not a claim to Peter's importance. It's a direct claim to the importance of the confession that he made. My church, we built upon a right understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. A church can be wrong about a lot of things. You can have poor facilities. You can have lousy music. You can have a... a um, a shallow discipleship ministry. You can have a cranky pastor. You may not want any of those things, but a church can have a lot of those things and still muddle along in healthy ministry. But a church cannot be wrong about the person and work of Christ. The church that forfeits the, person, the basic biblical teaching of the, perfect, of, the, of the person and work of Christ in his virgin birth, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection... If a church is wrong on those basic big markers of the life of Christ, that is a church that will be distant from the will and blessing of God. Truth number one about the church this morning is that Jesus establishes his church on sound doctrine. And the foundation of that doctrine is the person and work of Christ. Notice truth number two. Jesus is Lord over the church. Notice verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Circle that word my in your Bible. Underline that word my in your Bible. Highlight that word my on your iPad. Jesus is making an unmistakable claim to ownership. 
This is a possessive pronoun, singular, not our church. It's my church, Jesus said. I once had a layman say to me in the church, he meant it sweetly. He said, you know, one of the things I love about our church is, Pastor, it's not my church, it's not your church, it's all of our church. And that's a, you know, that's not a, like a horrible assessment. I mean, there's some, some, some truth to that statement, right? But if you think about it more fully, it's actually none of our church. It's Jesus' church, right? And Jesus is saying, I will build my church. There's ownership over this. Jesus is not our co-pilot. He's our pilot. He's not our business partner. He's our business owner. He's not the one who's a part of the leadership team. He is the leadership team. Jesus is Lord over the church. He says, I will build my church. Now, I will tell you, I have five children, as was, as was mentioned. They are now ages 19, 18, 16, 14, 13. So I flew them all over here this week. So pray for me when the credit card bill comes in. <laughs> we all came over here and uh, have had a delightful time together this week. But uh, 19, 18, 15, 14, 13. Excuse me, 19, 18, 16, 14, 13. And uh, my two oldest girls, a few years ago, they were playing junior high basketball. Okay, And we kind of got a family where... Most of all, our kids have played sports somewhere along the way. And uh, our girls were playing junior high girls basketball. Now, junior high girls basketball may not sound that important to you, but if it's your junior high girl playing, it's pretty important, right? And so we were playing junior high girls basketball, and our two, two oldest girls were playing. And they play our, the school that our kids go to is a very small little Christian school. So the league is a very small little league with small school Christian schools in it. So it's kind of a kambinky league. Well, anyway, it's the end of the season. It's the, uh, the tournament at the end of the season, the little conference championship tournament. It's played in this gym that seats like 600, maybe 800 people. And, uh, but there's like no one there. The game's on a Thursday afternoon at 2 o'clock. And so it's like me and my wife and like you know, 30 or 40 other parents sprinkled to this gym. And, and we, I mean, we are BBs in a shoebox. And even the game, the gym is just so quiet. But every time like play stops, I mean, it, it is quiet, quiet. We're there. And I usually like to sit on the top row so I can lean back against the wall and you know, kind of be there. So my wife and I are on the top row, lean back, watching this game. Well, anyway, we're watching the game, and, and the referees clearly were struggling. Have any of you ever been there? The referees were clearly struggling, okay? And they kept calling fouls on our girls, but not calling fouls on the other team. And so it's like, you know, we have four fouls, they have no fouls. We have five fouls, they have one foul. We have six fouls, they have two fouls. And so finally, it's, they, they call a foul, and we have eight fouls, they have two fouls. And these referees, I'm telling you, they were struggling, and the Christian thing to do is to help them out, right? And so we're there watching the game. I'm like, man, these guys are struggling. And so we are up. My wife are on the top row there. And we're watching the game. And the foul's now 8-2. And this girl on the other team is about to shoot a free throw. Well, it's this moment, like, right when she's got the ball at the line. And, like, everyone in the gym is, I mean, it, it, there is not a, you, there is no noise in the gym. And I just say, I don't yell. I just, with elevated voice, say, the fouls are 8-2. to two. Let's even it up, ref. Well, like, every gym, head in the gym looks at me. My wife, who's not here at the moment, she's, she's in another room right now on the campus here, but you know, she's so sweet and well-appointed. Well, she like elbows me in the side. I cannot believe you just yelled. I said, sweetie, I didn't yell. I just made a public observation. <laughs> and uh, that's all I did. Well, I got to tell you, I, I'm not angry. I'm not going to yell this morning, but I'm going to make a public observation. I'm in churches all the time that though they understand biblically Jesus is Lord of the church, they function 
operationally as though he doesn't exist. And it's all about making decisions that makes as many people happy as possible without wondering, does this decision make our Lord happy? It's all about making decisions, trying to build consensus without wondering, is this agreeable to our Lord? And let me remind us this morning, a church can take a vote that is 100% unanimous, but be absolutely disapproved by our Lord if it dishonors Him or goes against His Word. A congregation can be on the same page, which can be a good thing, but if it's not on Jesus' page, it's a bad thing. Jesus is Lord over His church, and He doesn't share that with anyone. And so it's incumbent upon the church to seek His will, to obey His Word, to govern itself and shape its ministry by the clear teachings of Scripture. That's what we're after. And so Jesus says, my church is established on sound doctrine. Jesus says He is Lord over the church. And notice thirdly, Jesus guarantees the church's success. Notice verse 18 again. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Notice these five words here, these big five words in the middle of verse 18. I. Jesus has not delegated the responsibility of building his church. This is not an outsourced endeavor. This is not given to Peter, or to John, or to Paul, or to Michael, or Gabriel, any human or angelic being. Jesus says, I. I. He says, I will, not I hope, or I'm praying so, or I'm rooting for, or I'm observing. I will. Do you understand this morning, Jesus is not preoccupied with another galaxy somewhere. He's preoccupied with his church this Lord's day, and churches just like this. I will build. There is an activity here, an industry here. Jesus is actively engaged in the strength of his church. I will build, I will build my, again, possession here. I will build my church. This word church refers to the called out ones, those called out of the world to follow Christ out of darkness into light. Those who are wayward but called into a family. Those who are spiritually dead but called into a community of spiritual life. I will build my church. Brothers and sisters, it's about the church. It's not about the youth group or the seminary or the Tuesday night Bible study or the Saturday morning women's group. All those can be good and acceptable and even helpful ministries in as much as they support and strengthen the church. But if they're distracting the church or competing with the church or hindering the church, then there's a problem there, you see. Remember with me that the New Testament is all about the church, right? What do we see? We see in the Gospels Jesus pointing to the church. Passage right here. We see in the Gospels, in the Great Commission, in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, we see what? Jesus talking about the Great Commission to go and make disciples and baptizing them into the church. We see Acts chapter 2, the church birth at Pentecost when Peter preaches and the church is born. And then throughout the book of Acts, what do we see? Churches being planted, mission trips being taken, establishing churches, converts being made, baptized into the church. Then we get to the epistles, and what do we see? We see Paul's letters all are written to specific churches about specific issues, what they should teach, what they should not teach, what they should believe, what they should not believe, how they should live, how they should not live, how they should govern themselves, how they should not govern themselves, how they should minister, how they should not minister. You see, the corpus of the New Testament is about the church. 
Then you get to those universal epistles like, like First and Second Peter, for instance. And what are those? Similarly, instructions about churches, but as opposed to one specific church sent circularly to be distributed to all the churches. Then we come to the book of Revelation. And what is it? It begins with seven letters to seven real churches. Findable on a map then. Findable on a map today. And then this great unpacking of the end of the age when our Lord comes back for his church and we rule and reign with him forever. The church is central to the mission of God. And so Jesus is saying here, that church, I am committed to guaranteeing its success. I will build my church. And that is not a permission slip for a church to be passive or lazy or knuckle-headed. It's not like, okay, we can be really lazy and really uncommitted and really stupid, and Jesus has just got it. No, it's not a universal promise to every single little church and every single little place. They can do whatever they want, and Jesus will keep the doors open, the lights on. No. But Jesus is saying, from one century to the next, from one generation to the next, from one place of this globe to the next, my church will endure. And for 2,000 years, in the face of persecution and famine, oppressive governments, Marxist regimes, and so much more that has been thrown at the church, the church continues to press on it. So here we are on a rock in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with nice weather on a Sunday morning, and we have people from all these different nationalities and backgrounds and stages of life in the early service and the servant here together, worshiping together, a part of this church. Folks, that's not a human undertaking. That is a spiritual divine undertaking that our Lord is in charge of. Jesus guarantees the church's success. Now see with me fourthly and finally, Jesus wants a pure church. I say to you that you are Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades, that is to say death itself, will not overpower it. Now verse 19. And when you first read it, it almost reads like a peculiar detour, right? I mean, verse 13 through 18, the narrative flows quite clearly. Jesus asking what the crowd says as a whole. Focus it, what do you think? Then talks about this confession came from the Father. It's building to the church upon this rock, this confessional statement, I will build my church. And then what is this business about the keys of the kingdom of heaven and what's bound and loosed? And this is a reference to the spiritual ministry of the church. And we see this fleshed out in places like Matthew 18. The responsibility of the church of, of, of acknowledging one is bound or forgiven their sin. So if a person is, is in sin and unrepentant, then the church says you are in sin and you are in that sin. But if a person repents, it's a part of the, the, uh, the, the, the sweet ministry of the church to say, based upon your repentance, Christ has forgiven you. And that sin and the penalty of that sin has been removed from you. So Jesus say. That's part of the ministry of the church, and he's saying that's a serious part of the church. And he's saying, I want a pure church, you see? Every congregation is a little kingdom colony, a kingdom outpost, a, spe a speck of light in a dark world, a community of life in a world of spiritual death, a community of hope in a world of spiritual doubt. A community of joy in a world of spiritual grief, you see? 
And Jesus is saying, that's my people. And when my people are together in community together, living together, serving together, worshiping together, their witness is strengthened as their life is, is in distinction from the world. And so God's people don't talk like the world's. God's people don't live like the world lives. God's people don't have the same priorities that the world has. God's people don't, uh, don't partake in the same aberrant lifestyle choices that the world partakes in. You see, we are a testimony, a living testimony that is to honor Christ individually and then collectively, robustly as God's people together in a covenant community together seek to so honor Him. But when a Christian or a church or a church attender, one affiliated with a church, lives a life contrary to Scripture that undermines the reputation of Christ. It undermines the witness of the church, you see. Uh, I mentioned we, we live in Kansas City, and God's been so kind to us. I'm nearly, uh, nearly, nearly completed my 10 years of serving at Midwestern Seminary. It's been a sweet story. God's grown the seminary and blessed us with students and financially and just given us a, a, great, a great ministry run the past 10 years. As an aside, we love living in Kansas City. It's a great city. We, we do get to root for the Chiefs, which has been relatively enjoyable the past few years. Get to root for the Royals, uh, enjoyable, but not as much as the Chiefs the last few years. Uh, get to enjoy all the different parts of living in middle America. And uh, one of the things Kansas City has is this area called the Plaza, and it's this massive outdoor shopping area. And some of you have been there. And it's kind of block after block of nice restaurants and high-end stores. And it's a great place to go and walk around in the afternoon and you know, enjoy family outing and whatnot. Well, a few years ago, my wife and I went to the plaza and our kids uh, had activities. So it was just the two of us. And we had a little shopping to do. And, and we kind of agreed that we would split up for a few minutes and then kind of meet up in a few minutes. A couple stores she wanted to go into, a couple stores I wanted to go into. So anyway, I told her, I'm going to go in this men's store and just kind of, when you're done, just kind of find me in there and we can leave. So I go in this men's store and uh, it's this big men's store on the plaza. It's actually closed now due to COVID, but it was a big men's store on the plaza. And one of these high-end stores, you kind of do more looking than, than, than purchasing. Anyway, I go in the door there and there's a door kind of on one end of the store and then on the opposite end of the store, there's another door. And I kind of like went in that door thinking I'll kind of meander through here and look around and then kind of leave the other door. About that time, Karen will be done shopping. Well, I go, I go in the store there, and I'm greeted by the salesman, and this gentleman is kind of a tall, slender guy, and he looks like he's probably in his early 70s. He's got his, um, his uh, gray hair, you know, uh, slicked back, and he's wearing a nice suit, presents himself very well, and, you know, being a salesman, he, he greets me with a big handshake and a, a warm smile and begins to kind of converse with me, and, and I'm, I'm just kind of trying to move through the store, not, not make a friend for life, and, uh, but, but he's talking, and... Uh, He's talking. Well, anyway, I'm struck by as he's talking to me how coarse his, like, his language is. And he's talking, and he's just, I mean, four-letter word after four-letter word. And, and this is like, I go from being like Jason the pastor, don't appreciate it. Jason the Christian, doesn't appreciate it. But I'm just thinking like, as a member of the human race, like the human species, th this is not putting the store's you know, best foot forward as far as how this guy's greeting shoppers. So all this to me is kind of, kind of bizarre. Like this guy, man, who is this guy? Strange and talking so coarsely. So I'm just trying to kind of get out of the store. So I'm, I'm moseying through and, and uh, trying to make my way to the door. This guy, he's like, he's hot on the trail. You know, he's on me. And he keeps talking and trying to establish some point of connection. You know, to... So anyway, I'm just about to leave the store. And I notice I'm about to go out this door. My wife comes in that door way back there. I'm thinking, oh, great. Now I got to like reboot with this guy to get my wife and make our way back through. Well, anyway, I get my wife, and we're coming through. Well, I'm thinking, well, surely this guy's going to dial it back with my wife here, you know. 
he's an older guy. Surely, you know, he's got enough awareness. But he doesn't do it. And so we're walking, and he's just popping off from my wife. Again, I'm just thinking, I cannot believe this guy's doing this. So we're just trying to, like, get out of the store. We're trying to evacuate ourselves. Anyway, we're, we're, just, we're getting closer to the door. And he says, he says, well, where do you guys live in Kansas City? And I say, well, we live up, up north Kansas City. He says, I used to live up north Kansas City. He said, where in North Kansas City? And I said, well, in the Gladstone area. He says, well, I used to live in the Gladstone area. Okay, and again, I just want to leave. I just want him out of my life. I don't, I don't want to position him to make house calls, you know. And so uh, he goes, well, well, where in Gladstone? I said, well, we live off of Vivian Road. And he says, I used to live off Vivian Road. Okay. I said, okay, great. And he says, well, well where off Vivian Road? And I said, well, kind of Vivian Road and North Oak Traffic Way. He says, I used to live right there, Vivian Road and North Oak Traffic Way. He says, well, like, what house do you live in? And I said, well, there's this house. It's kind of up on the hill. It's a white house. It sits up on the hill. And he said, oh, I know that house. He said, I thought the Baptists owned that house. And, uh, and I said, the Baptists do own the house. And I can see him beginning to think, like, what's happened the last five minutes here? <laughs> and uh, he said, it's the Baptist seminary that owns it, right? And I said, yes, sir, the Baptist seminary. He says, uh, are you affiliated with that seminary? And I said, I-, I am, yes, sir. And he says, well, well what do you do? And I said, well, actually, I'm the president. And I can see he's thinking, he goes, hallelujah, I'm a Baptist. <laughs> and I'm just like, in this moment, I just want to die. I'm thinking like, like all observing humanity have been hearing this guy, you know, swear for 10 minutes. And now he, they hear him announce, hallelujah, I'm a Baptist. I don't know what church he was or wasn't a part of. I suspect he wasn't part of any, wasn't in any active way a part of a church. But that little story is, yes, funny, but it's also sad because it represents not only a person who was adrift, but it represents a church that had been sullied reputationally by that token identification with it, you see. And we find here in these verses, as this passage ends, that Jesus has this clear sense of a church that's healthy and pure, a church that's holy the spiritually minded and oriented, a church that's on mission for him. And so I say to you this morning, Jesus wants a pure church, and you get a pure church by having pure people within the church. And this is not a call for perfection. None of us measure up. It's not a call for puffed up self-righteousness. Jesus was clearly against that. But it's a call for humility, for living our lives in a way where we are constantly seeking to honor God with our decision-making, with our words, with our lifestyle choices, And as we do that individually, that honors Christ. As we do that collectively, that really honors Christ. Because in the church, the sum total is greater than its parts, you see. So this is the church. The church the past two years that's kind of had to muddle its way through COVID, like like my church has done and your church has done and most every church. The church that's seeking to serve in a broadly consumeristic age. But a church that Jesus promises to build and promises will be triumphant. A church that Jesus calls to be established on sound doctrine. A church that Jesus underscores that he is Lord over. A church that Jesus is committed to building. And a church that Jesus says, I want it to be pure. How is your churchmanship this morning? I know this, this congregation wants to know that God has had a sweet plan for this church in years past, in years present. And I believe in years future as well. And I want to encourage you to pursue that mission, pursue that ministry with faithfulness, understanding how high the stakes truly are. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning, and I thank you for these sweet people. Thank you for the passage we've considered together.
And Father, I ask that um, you would bear much fruit from this Lord's day, and especially from the preaching of your word from these verses. Father, I pray more broadly for Hawaii Kai Church and for their mission here on this part of the island. Would you strengthen their work here? Would they be encouraged by seeing the fruit of their labors? Would you position them beyond the island to think the broader Asiatic region and all that you've put before them by way of ministry possibilities? So God, would you bless this church even today as we've asked you to bless the preaching of your word to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.